This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And good morning, good afternoon, whatever the case may be, you happen to be at this moment in time. I certainly hope that you remember to change your clocks, or else you've been waiting to hear the show for an hour. And uh, so the only ones they didn't know about the time change were my animals. And, uh, and they let you know when it's time to eat and time to go out. And certainly they were on their schedule, which was the old schedule. So I was up early anyway for them. So um, glad you're here with me now. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Horber. Here for the next 30 minutes on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. Live call-in show. We're here for you. We're here for your pets. We're here to talk about anything, though, of course. I have my subjects I'm prepared, but I do want to hear from you. You can get a hold of me very easily, 877-385-8882. That's toll-free, 877-385-8882. You can all better join us here live on Google Hangouts. You can go on to the PetLifeRadio.com, click on Shows. Scroll down to Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, and there in a box, you know, just a few inches down on the, on the page, you're going to see a Google Hangouts link. Click on the link, as I did, and you can join us here live, which is really, really cool. So uh, I, you should do that as well. Anyway, anything you want to talk about is fine. I'd like to know how your Halloween went. I'd like to know if your pets had any problems with either escaping or maybe getting freaked out or getting hold of candy or nuts or something they shouldn't have. And how that turned out. So if you want to give us a report, how your pets did on Halloween, can we give, give us a call right now at 877-385-8882 or join us live on Google Hangouts. So um, you got some stuff here in the news that we want to talk about today, which we'll do in the second part of the show. Something on, it's a uterine condition. It is basically the reason, one of the major reasons why most of us are advocates of spay-neuter. But this is for spaying, and it is a uterine infection that could be deadly, and it's called pyometra. And the reason I want to talk about it now is because in the last, you know, we always say bad things happen in threes. I'd say I've had about five or six cases of my own. Now, and my clients are usually pretty good. Now, I work with one of the rescue groups, the Sam Simon Foundation, and they do amazing work. Sam and I were uh, high school together. He was a year below me in high school. Sadly, uh, he was also one of the co-creators of The Simpsons, for those of you who don't know. Sadly, he passed away uh, last year. But Sam left his legacy in the Sam Simon Foundation, and um, they do free spay-neuters, and we take care of a lot of their pets because they don't have a facility per se. So what happens is, after hours, uh, since many, many of the dogs that they spay have pyometra, and they really need some overnight care. So uh, we take care of the dogs overnight. So I'm used to seeing Sam Simon's dogs the foundation's dogs with Pio and they come and they say, you know, we need to hospitalize overnight. No problem. But when I'm seeing my own patients with Pio, I am shocked. And I'm going to tell you a story, which is what brought this whole thing about. So we're going to talk about that second half of the show. Uh, right now, until I hear from you, 877-385-8882, or join us live in Google Hangouts, I'm going to just go through some of the news items that I found interesting. This one you may have seen on the video. I saw it on the video, which was amazing. A eel fisherman. He's a commercial eel fisherman, jumps in to the ocean to save a whale that was caught in a large net and rope that was attached to a buoy, and he couldn't get out. And though it was a gutsy, some might say stupid thing to do, this guy jumps in the water, jumps on the back of the whale with a knife, 
and starts cutting the rope free, freeing up the whale. Fortunately, everybody did well. Not something I would definitely recommend on a regular basis unless you are very, very secure in the water, especially around an animal of that size. But uh, it seemed like the whale knew that he was getting help. It was really cool. That's a good ending to a very potentially terrible story. This is also interesting. And I found this very interesting. Because this, this you have to know, this goes back to a discussion that we've had as, a, as veterinarians, as veterinary students for years. And how do you learn surgery? To learn anatomy on a cadaver, yeah, that I get. But there's nothing like feeling tissue. There's nothing like seeing the bleeding, how to handle the bleeding. And this is something that, you know, has always plagued me. Those of us, so what we used to do at UC Davis, which was considered to be some of the most humane at that time, this is 40 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, is we used to take dogs, they were shelter dogs, that were on death row. They were going to be put to sleep. So instead of just putting them to sleep, what we would do is we would take them and we would do our surgeries on these dogs. And then as far as the humaniacs, the welfare groups were concerned, we would not let them wake up. So they were euthanized right after our procedures. And of course, everything we did was very closely monitored by the professors, by the clinicians, by the residents. But you really get the feel for handling tissue, for seeing the bleeding, for knowing what it feels like, the inside of a belly, whatever, inside of a chest, do the heart, the beating heart. I mean, it really was a better way to go. Now, there were some, interestingly, some other schools. And again, I'm not being judgmental, and nor should you. This is some of the other theories where why, since we're so closely monitored, all right, why do we put these poor dogs to sleep and then have to put more to sleep? Let's take a dog per team per semester, and they ranked the procedures based on the procedure itself. And so whatever it was, whether it was you're doing a splenectomy, whether it was doing a spay-neuter, whether it was doing a, a nephrectomy or a, removing a, a kidney, whether it was doing a, a cardiac patch, doing an amputation, whatever the surgery was, and then these dogs would get up. Many of the dogs were then adopted out to the students after everything was done. And if there was any problem, of course, in the surgery, then that animal would be put to sleep. But this way, the dogs, they would go through the, the, the semester with their students and then often would be adopted by one of the students on the team. That was another way to do it. Well, here's a way that's going to potentially make everybody happy. And that is, and again, these things, years and years and years in the making. They're synthetic canine cadavers. They have a real lifelike experience for the students. This is done at Cornell University. It's the first um, vet school that's doing it. They bleed. The animals can breathe. They have lifelike muscles and organs, bones. They're mostly made from water, salt, and fibers. And the cadavers, these fake cadavers, or these lifelike cadavers can be reused. So when there's skin incisions, they can patch them and just sort of put new skin on. And occasionally what will happen is the organs themselves need to be replaced every so often. So I have not seen it. I have not worked with it. I can't tell you whether it's the same. But I got to tell you this, for those naysayers out there who never liked the way students were taught tissue handling, the skills of surgery, let me ask you a question. Would you have wanted to go to a surgeon for a surgery on you where the surgeon never touched a real patient yet, just a fake one, just a cadaver, versus someone who has worked and learned on a real body? Of course, with extreme supervision, right under the, the wings of a, of a clinician, of a professor, of a resident, you know, a third-year resident, whatever the case may be. But I know for me personally, and from my comfort level getting out of school and doing surgery, 
I appreciated the fact that my experience, my learning experience was on a real pet, a real animal. They were not suffering. They were anesthetized during the procedure and they were put to sleep, which they were going to be anyway. So a lot of ways to think about it, a lot of ways to do it. But I know that I, as a surgeon, I am very happy that I at least got to learn on a real animal. And I think that this might be the closest thing. I haven't tried it. I don't know about it, but something to think about. Real life synthetic cadavers. Love it. Anyway, here's one. I'm dealing with this right now. Even though California has now passed marijuana rules, marijuana laws that are allowing for the for legalization of marijuana, veterinarians under the Veterinary Practice Act, still we can talk about it. We can make suggestions. We can maybe give some facts and figures, but veterinarians in California still can't prescribe, dispense, or administer any marijuana products, which is a little bit frustrating because the data out there is overwhelmingly positive. We do still need more work done on toxicities. We, of course, and we've talked about this before, we know what the lethal dose is. We just don't know enough about the toxic dose. So how do we start studying the beneficial effects unless we know really what the toxic doses are? Then, of course, some another complicating factor is the fact that there's so many different types of marijuanas out there and the strains. It's not like back in the day, 40 years ago, where you bought you know, an ounce of marijuana and that was it. Now, I was in Aspen last year and we went into a dispensary and I was shocked at how many different types and strength and that. Holy cow, you need a degree and just marijuana before you start working at these places. It's fascinating. So for the few states where it's legal, I know in Colorado, it can be prescribed. The next time this comes up before the California State Board is in 2020. So for the next year, at least year and plus some, again, we do what I've been doing for years anyway, talking about it, giving them some things to read. But I personally can't say, oh, here's a prescription, go do it. This was interesting. Also, speaking of medications, drugs, this was a drug must in Maryland. And, you know, this stuff blows my mind. I'm sure you've heard of Special K, not the cereal, of course, but the drug that people were taking, the date rape drug, it's ketamine, it's a cat tranquilizer. Well, there's one that there was a drug bust where 21 people involved, $800,000 worth of drugs, and one 20 pounds, 20 pounds of xylazine. Xylazine is a tranquilizer, uses more in large animal than small, but we use it in small animal medicine as well. And listen to this, they use it to add to heroin. So it's like, are you kidding? So in fact, there was actually a reported death in Maryland, not because the heroin, probably because of the xylazine. So um, just another reason to don't do drugs. Very simple. But uh, that blows my mind that what are, what are they going to think of next to stick into uh, drugs? That's frightening. This is a good one. This is a good one coming up. So, you know, often we say that the the answer to cancer, oh, boy, that was a rhyme. I didn't really. The answer to cancer is going to be, is going to be immunotherapy. Yes, of course, there's drugs. There's anti-cancer drugs. As we know, they have a, take a tremendous toll on the body, but it's all in the genes. We all feel that, for example, there's certain cancers. If, if you don't have that underlying cancer gene, no matter what you do to the body, you're not, I'm sure you've heard of people that smoke cigarettes their entire life and have never gotten lung cancer. They just didn't have that cancer gene to modify, to mutate, to become cancerous, to turn it on, whatever the case may be. Conversely, you have people that never smoked a day in their life and get lung cancer, probably because of secondhand. So they obviously had this gene and it was turned on because of whatever exposed exposure they had. Well, we think that the best way to treat cancer, the future is going to be immunotherapy, getting the body to beat its own cancer. And so the study was done it's an experimental immunotherapy medication that has expanded the lifespan of dogs with osteo 
sarcoma. Osteosarcoma is a bone cancer. We see it more in large breed dogs. That's one of the reasons why we've talked about this, that I'm becoming more of an advocate of not doing early neuter or spay in large breeds, as we find there's a link as well to bone cancer and early spay neuter. But anyway, the mean was usually about for with, with surgery, maybe some chemo, maybe about uh, six to nine months. This one, surgery alone was 134 days with nothing else but surgery. So three months on surgery. This immunotherapy has expanded the lifespan to 415 days, almost four times as much, which is amazing. So again, it's experimental it's not out on the market yet, but you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that something using immunotherapy is really going to be the answer to how we treat some of these cancers. And uh, also, this is also really cool. I mean, we, I was just talking about this yesterday with a friend of mine about how, how amazing dogs are. We talk about our sixth sense. I feel dogs have 10. I mean, yes, they have their five, but then after that, it's amazing. So let's check this one out. We think it's because of their nose. And remember, we have about 5 million nasal receptors. Dogs have 200 million nasal receptors. That means their schnoz, their ability to, to pick up scents is 40 times what we have. That's amazing. So this is a good one. They're using bio, uh, they, they call them biodetection dogs that have trained and to detect subclinical malaria in kids in countries that where malaria is a problem. I know when I was in the Amazon, we were doing a veterinary mission there a number of years ago. I had to take the malaria medication. Malaria is prevalent there. And they pick it up by smelling the kids' socks. And they can identify those kids that were exposed to or even have malaria. Listen to this. 70% sensitivity and then 90% specificity. So if they detect it, there's a 90% chance it's specific for the malaria infection. It, that's amazing. So whatever you're thinking about dogs and, and their uses, not uses, what are they good for? Man, when you have, when you have a, a story like this, it just says, you know what? I'm certainly glad that they are sharing our planet with us or we're sharing their planet with them, however you want to look at it. And then last one, Dr. Google. Dr. Google isn't such a great vet. And this is from the AVMA. And I, again, I've been telling this for years. I actually have a mug. I think I've shown it to you before. It says, don't confuse your Google search with my veterinary degree. When it comes to things, you just, first of all, most of the websites sensationalize things and you're just getting the worst scenario. You're getting a zebra. You're getting a, not the normal thing. And Google can't ask you back some history. When did this problem start? How did it start? What's the dog doing now? How is he? Is he still eating? Is he still playful? I mean, there are so many things that go into, oh, my dog is vomiting or my dog has blood in his stool, right? And you go to Google and it's, oh my God, my dog has cancer. Colon cancer. I got to rush to the vet right away. Not the case. So we still need that history is essential. If you can get your hands on that pet's essential, even some of the newer technologies, the telemedicine technologies, where you can actually see the dog, talk, interface, interact, those are much better than Dr. Google. So um, if you're thinking about it, we're going to talk to more about AirVet as the months go on, but that's one of the, the top telehealth services. But anyway, until then, talk to your veterinarian, talk to somebody, don't just go online and read Dr. Google. Anyway, don't go away. We'll be right back after these short messages. We're going to talk about pyometra and stump pyos. See you back. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? 
get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Pretty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> And welcome back. You're here live with Dr. Jeff here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Bets with Dr. Jeff. And here to talk about Pyometra. What's Pyometra? Well, Pyometra is a uterine infection. It is obviously you need a uterus to have a uterine infection. But more importantly, interestingly, you need to have ovaries to have a uterine infection. Because in the United States, we have always done what's called an OVH, ovariohysterectomy. When we do our surgery, we remove the ovaries and the uterus. In most parts of the world, they do an ovariectomy. They leave the uterus and they just take the ovaries. And what we know is without the hormone influences, the female hormone, the uterus shrivels up and dies. And so when a dog gets a pyometra, it usually follows a heat and it could be eight weeks or so after a heat, but the uterus gets severely infected and it fills up with pus. There are two types of infections. One is called an open pyometra or open pyo and a closed pyo. The closed is a little bit more dangerous. Why? There's no place for this discharge, this, this infection to drain. And therefore the uterus fills up. It's huge. And the, the just put, to put it in perspective, you can have a dog, normal white cell count of a dog is around 17, 17 and a half thousand white cells. Okay. It's rated per deciliter. Well, in a dog with pyo, it can go up to 7,500, 100,000. It's ridiculously high. These dogs get overwhelming infections and they stop eating. They're sick. They're febrile, et cetera. In an open pyo, it's a little easier for at least you to make a decision that there's something wrong because you see a continued drainage coming out of the vaginal area and you say, oh my God, my dog is sick. We typically see this in older dogs. But it can happen in a young dog too. I have, I have one recently that was a fairly young dog that had a pio. So now what about a, what we call a stump pio? This is where we knew that it is really the ovaries that dictate. So if in fact, when you do an ovariectomy, you just remove the ovaries, that the uterus dies, it just shrivels up into a band of, of tissue, then how is it, what happens? Why is it that we occasionally see what's called a stump pio? A stump pio is where we have done here in the U.S., we've done our, our, our surgery, and we remove the ovaries, we remove the uterus, 
we take it down, when we do remove the uterus, we go down to what's called the cervix of the body of the uterus. And we, that's what we excise, we cut at that point, leaving what we call the stump, the uterine stump. Well, if in fact, the uterine stump is part of the uterus, and we know from countries that do ovariectomies that when the ovaries are removed, the tissue just dies, how is it that we're getting an infection in the uterine stump that we've left behind? Ah, the answer is incomplete ovariectomy. The doctor doing the surgery left some ovarian tissue behind, which is most often Occasionally, there's some ectopic ovarian tissue that was missed because you didn't know it was there. But 95 plus percent of the time, it's because a little piece of ovary was left behind, which makes, I mean, when you have a uterine stump or a, a, a pyometra, a uterine stump pyometra, it is so challenging. Why? On the one hand, we have to fix it. On the second hand, we know that there has to be some ovary left behind somewhere. And the key is we have to find the ovary. And that's the hard part because when we're doing with a regular surgery, we know that we have to remove the ovary. So this is something where we have to look for a piece of ovary that's often very small. And we don't know, is it the left side, the right side? It makes it very, very, very challenging. So the key is when the surgery is being done, it's very important to have a complete ovarioectomy. The, the entire ovary needs to be removed. And when you have a stump pio, it's very challenging because we have to look for it. And trust me, it's really hard to find. So um, bottom line is don't not spay. That's the bottom line. If you have a champion dog and you've done gone through all the motions to make sure that the dog is going to be, you know, you're going to use them for breeding, then yes, do your breeding, get it out of the way, make your money, whatever it is, or whatever your motivation is. But when you're done, make sure she's spayed. I had a dog in recently that was a 13-year-old dog and we had a bloated belly. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is one of my patients. And it was it came, it came here as an, as an adult dog. So what we had to do, hang on a second, guys. So I'm taking care of my grandchildren. How fun is that? So <laughs> at least may as well come and say hello. You can see them in the background. So anyway, I'm talking to the owner about this terrible infection, high fever, and I'm trying to figure out what it is in the belly is like feeling very plump. And the guy says to me, so I said, you know, I think we're going to have to go in and explore. I did an ultrasound. I could see something was there. Didn't know what it was. And he goes, oh, you think while she's under anesthesia, you could spay her? I'm going, she's not spayed. No wonder. Yeah, there's her answer. Sure enough, pyometra. So uh, we, we did the spay, and that's all we had to do. The dog is doing great. But anyway, that's how we know. So as you can see, I have my grandkids today, and uh, they're playing with our little hamster. Remember our hamster? So uh, that's all we have time for. I would love to hear from you. Any topic you want to hear about, anything that you're not sure about, don't go to Dr. Google. You can go to Dr. Google for a little bit of information, but if you really want to get the meat of it, you have free veterinary advice here every Sunday morning. Take advantage of it, and you know, bring your dog, sit him on your lap or your cat or whatever, and we'll take a look on the real time. We're here on Google Hangouts and uh, we can have a lot of fun. So I'm having fun now too, <laughs> as you can hear. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining me here at Pet Life Radio. Uh, we'll see you here next week. Same time, same channel, 9 a.m. here in the West, uh, noon in the East and wherever you are in between. And again, we'd love to hear from you. If you have um, uh, any questions, anything you want to talk about, please get a hold of me, drjeff at petliferadio.com or Sign me up. Send me on Instagram. You can see me on Instagram at Dr. Jeff Werber. 
And um, I would love to follow me and you'll see some really, really cute pictures, if nothing else. Plus, I do some educational videos that uh, have to be down to a minute. So you can't say use an excuse. You don't have enough time. They're only a minute long. All right. See you next week. Have a great week, everybody. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.